Welcome back to another episode of the TMC Talk Show. Today we are sitting down with the one and only Ed Bolian. In this episode, we talk about how Ed started his company VinWiki, the origins of his hit YouTube series Car Trek, and Ed's record-setting cannonball run. Stay tuned for all of this and much more. Welcome to the show, Ed. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on, and I hope that during our time today, we will be able to cover the wide scope of your many involvements in the automotive community. So, without further ado, my first question. You are perhaps best known for your company, VinWiki. Um, I was actually first introduced to VinWiki through car stories on YouTube, but I know that your company does a lot more than just posting YouTube videos. So, if you don't mind me asking, what exactly does VinWiki do and how did you get the idea to start it? Sure. So VinWiki is fundamentally an app and that is a crowdsourcing vehicle history reporting app. So think of us as kind of like a social version of Carfax. And so we've got a community of about 400,000 users that post information to cars by the VINs or by the license plate. And the idea is that we really become our car's stories and so being able to build what is you know, more recognizably a social media timeline for a car with different users inputting information, to me, was a really compelling way to sort of curate the car's history. And so we started the app back in the summer of 2016, me and some friends that just had different development skill sets. And I was kind of the sales guy with the idea. And it was based a lot off of some of the strategies that I had used in selling cars while I worked as the director of sales at Lamborghini Atlanta and Motor Cars of Georgia. And it's a way that you can kind of craft the narrative of what a car is in a way that can compel a transaction a lot more readily than a Carfax or an auto check or just an online listing might be able to. And so we wanted to build a way for enthusiasts and stakeholders to be able to kind of immortalize the data, the pictures, the ideas, the, the history of these cars. And after about a year of that, starting in 2016, in the summer of 2017, it had grown and we had users that got it and were very passionate about it, but that was only a few thousand users. And so we were a long way from any kind of critical mass or scale or anything like that. And we needed to do more in terms of marketing. And I recognized that when I had let Friends of mine who had big YouTube channels like Rob Brady or David Patterson or Tavarish borrow my cars and talk about the app, we picked up a lot of users. And so I knew that you could convert kind of the automotive YouTube audience into app downloaders and app users. And so I uh, decided, well, I think we should probably try to produce some YouTube content. And quite honestly, my idea was I'll get a bunch of friends together, we'll tell some good car stories, and then I'll give that content to one of my friends who has a channel and can get an audience. Because I never thought in my wildest dreams that we ever would build our own audience on YouTube. I knew people who had been doing it for a decade and still, you know, were still building up their audience. I was like, I, I don't have that kind of attention span. So I said, all right, well, we produced the first 25. Literally, I got some pizza and beer, had some friends out to my warehouse, and we just sat around telling car stories. And a friend of mine from church, shot and edit them. And so I put them in a Dropbox folder and sent them to Doug DeMuro, who's a good friend at the time. And at that time probably had like three to 400,000 followers Ferretti and Patterson and all these guys. And they all said, no. And I was like, what do you mean? I I'm giving you fully produced content. What, why would you not want to put it on your channel? I'm not even asking you for money, like just have it and let people see it. And they just, weren't into it. I mean, the problem with YouTube is that even though they're called YouTube channels, they're really YouTube shows. 
And if you, you have a lot of different types of content or styles of content, it can very much disrupt the way that the algorithm treats your videos. And they were all probably justifiably concerned that if they started releasing this type of content and still did their regular content, that it might not necessarily maintain the momentum that they wanted. So I just started releasing them on my channel. And I thought, you know, all right, if these 25 collectively get 50,000 views, like 2,000 views a video, that'd be great. And they got 800,000 views. And so we just kept doing it. But immediately, my friend from church who had been shooting and editing the first bit of them was like, hey, this is about to become somebody's full-time job and it ain't going to be mine. And so he kind of left and sort of hung me out to dry, which I, I don't blame him because he was right that it was going to become someone's thankless and unprofitable job very quickly. And it happened to become mine. And so, you know, whenever you're looking at building up a YouTube idea or a show concept or a podcast or anything like that, it's always best if there are sort of multiple types of wins. And so certainly it was not making a meaningful amount of money early on. We were developing a following, a subscriber base. We were getting views and we had videos that were being successful, but it was immediately translating to great growth in our app. And it was the most successful advertising, obviously, that we'd ever done. And so it behooved me as an equity holder in the app company to keep doing this uh, long before it made sense in terms of like income replacement or a job or anything like that. I see. So would you say the main thing that sets VinWiki, you know, as a, as an app that sets it apart from, you know, the millions or maybe not millions, but many other websites out there is just that maybe that social component of it? Yeah. I mean, you could almost say that VinWiki is a little bit like a native app forum experience for people who are really interested in documenting the significance of cars, the rarity of cars, and what they've done to their own cars. And so we've got, you know, users making thousands and thousands of posts a day to tell the stories of their cars, both for the sake of knowing what they can about these cars, but also about documenting what they've done so that there can be more value retained when they go to sell them. I see. Well, now while VinWiki is the business you currently run, it is not at all the, your first business experience in the automotive world. Um, in fact, you started a car rental business while you were still in college. Um, I've come to learn that the broke college student cliche is certainly overused, but also accurate. Um, how do you manage to raise seed money for your first venture? So critically, I did it in 2006 which was in the economic lending climate that precipitated the downturn around 2008. And so you could, as a broke college student, get a stated income exotic car loan based on the anticipated income that you might get from renting it out. And so I was able to get a loan for a Lamborghini Gallardo. At the time I had a B5 Audi S4 and I was able to sell that, use the, I think I sold it for 18 grand as a down payment and finance the rest and literally didn't have enough left over to make the first payment. So I had to begin renting it immediately. Obviously that was the plan all along. And I had seen uh, Noah and eventually Ferretti start Gotham dream cars. I'd helped them actually find their Gallardo, which was their second car. They had a 360 mode in the first. And I had sort of seen the way that worked. And at the time, an exotic car rental model was still pretty novel. Their Gotham had started in 04. I started in 06. Uh, there was budget rental car out in LA that had a couple of exotic cars. And there were a couple in Miami that would have like a Viper or something like that. But 
the idea of really renting Ferraris and Lamborghinis was still pretty new. And so, you know, Atlanta was certainly a sufficient market for it. It wasn't as vibrant and thriving as Miami or New York or Las Vegas or LA, but it did the job. And so a few months later, I got that car in July or August, and then I got a, the a 360 in uh, December, January, and added a 360 Spider not long after that, and then a 612. And so just kind of built up the fleet and ran it out of my dorm room, stored the cars at a local automotive kind of detail and stereo shop that was down the street from Georgia Tech. And, you know, it was, it was one of those things that I learned a lot. I took crazy risks that were probably ill-advised, but I figured the best time to go broke is when you already are. And, you know, when everybody else doesn't have any net worth, it didn't matter if you were bankrupt. And now, fortunately, I was always able to make the payments and continue to build it up and, you know, got a lot of good stories out of it, built up just rock star car credit, which was super, super valuable as I transitioned into my next role, which was selling cars. And, and that was kind of very deliberate. I did that in 2009 and I kept renting the cars through 2010, but I kind of realized very much that as the economy was recovering, the values of a lot of these cars had bottomed out so much that the customers that I had that were my favorite guys that were really treating the business opportunity as an ownership replacement concept where they were avoiding maintenance and depreciation and the ability to move in and out of different cars. Those were the guys you wanted. And at that point, they'd all figured out which car they liked the best. And they just bought one because there were pennies on the dollar. And so, you know, a, a 2008 Gallardo Spider is worth today what it was worth in 2009. I mean, they, they depreciated so bad, so immediately, and it was compounded by the fact that Vic Coolian of Lamborghini Orange County had just dumped all of his inventory onto the market one day without paying Volkswagen credit back for his floor plan loan. And so there was so much going on both in the world and in the exotic car market that it was just a better time to not be in that business because essentially the quality of my customer base eroded rather rapidly. And so... The opportunity to make money selling cars was also pretty profound because nobody could do it. And so when I joined Lamborghini in October of 2009, the dealership had sold five new cars that year. And by the time I left, we were selling 60 to 75. And so it was a good opportunity to kind of radically transform their business and to make my mark kind of on that part of the industry and significantly to learn. And, you know, I know so many people who are searching for the best opportunities for themselves within the car business or the world of cars. And honestly, just finding a role, whatever level or hierarchy or anything that you can within a dealership or a manufacturer or something like that is truly the best way to go about learning where you feel best and where you think you can you know, have the most fun, make the most money, make the most impact, whatever the goal sets are. As you were as you were talking about the the whole business model for a rental company kind of became obsolete, right? But why specifically did you think that selling, you know, at another dealership was the right was the was the right position for you? Because you seem to be a very entrepreneurial type person. Why would you not want to go ahead and maybe start another business of your own? Well, at the time I thought I might want to start a dealership. And I certainly knew that when you wanted to be in the car business and you know, there's a firm cap on what you can make working for a manufacturer. And I knew I was never going to be the president of Ferrari North America, not being Italian. And so I, I figured it was, it was a good way to kind of dip my toe in. And what I learned immediately was that on average, a salesperson 
at a high-end dealership has a 20 to 25% front-end commission pay plan, meaning that if you sell a car that makes 10 grand, you get 2,500 bucks. And after seeing the way that the dealership worked and the way that the net profitability of the dealership worked, I was making more than anybody else there. And I realized that if, if I was taking all the risk and I owned all the inventory and I paid for the rent and the insurance, and all this stuff, I wasn't going to make any more money. I mean, yes, in each deal, I would make more money, but my net wasn't going to be any better. And so running my book of business at Lamborghini Atlanta was still as entrepreneurial as I needed it to be. It didn't feel as good to say, you know, I sell Lamborghinis rather than I own an exotic car rental company. Certainly, you know, when you introduce yourself to somebody at a party and they ask what you do, I felt better saying that I own the company. But at the end of the day, I was making good money. I was having a lot of fun. I love the transactional nature of it. Obviously, I love negotiating deals and finding deals and manufacturing deals where there wasn't one and helping people to manage the values in their trade so they could come back and be repeat customers. And so I learned that I could do everything that I wanted to from an entrepreneurial perspective there with the exception to manage my own schedule. And that was essentially the downfall five, six years later was I just got tired of working 70, 80 hours a week because the thing about a successful sales role is always going to be that your success earns you the chance to work more, never less. And so I tried to hire an assistant. I tried to do other things. I tried to train people, but just due to the way that dealership was set up, it, it wasn't, I didn't want to be my boss. I didn't want his job. I didn't want his, bo his boss's job. And I certainly didn't want to own it. And when I left, I had several parties approach me saying, Hey, we'd like, you know, to buy it, give you some equity and have you run it. I was like, guys, no, I, I left on purpose. Like I am not interested. And then, you know, one of them offered me enough equity that it was worth the conversation, but it just, it was, it was the perfect thing at the perfect time. I loved it. I had a ton of fun and I have no intention of going back. <laughs> Well, it's time now as always to take a little break from our main conversation and delve into the off the grid segment. Um, for those of you who are new to the talk show, this is my chance to ask some unconventional questions and see if we can learn a little bit more about Ed by approaching the interview from a different angle. So Ed, based on all of your videos and our conversation thus far, you do seem to be a proper car enthusiast. However, you did run a supercar rental company. Now, based on my admittedly limited knowledge of the industry, supercar rental companies seem like a magnet for posers. Were you ever secretly annoyed when you had to hand over the keys to a customer adorned in a Burberry coat and whatever designer items they could find on clearance at the local Nordstrom Rack? <laughs> well, as a Nordstrom Rack shopper myself, I suppose I, uh, I can re relate in many ways to it. What I always loved was the chance to introduce the reality of a supercar to somebody who previously had only dreamt of it. And so in a lot of ways, I loved those people because they were going to learn a lot in the day or week or whatever it was to follow that. And the same was true when they would walk into the dealership. I mean, at first you want to qualify and make sure they're actually capable of making a buying decision. But once you know that they're really interested, especially in that window of time, 2009 to 2015, when I worked there, they, there was such an explosion of production of supercars that, you know, you cannot be a proper car enthusiast, but you can absolutely love a Bentley GT Speed, a Maserati Gran Turismo, a California, 
a lot of these cars that are that have a lot of brand cachet, but that most enthusiasts think are a little bit too watered down. And so watching those kind of like gateway drugs into the world of cars, and some people would say, you know what, that's about as hardcore as anything I ever want. And some of them ended up in GG2 RSs before too terribly long. And so to me, you know, our journey with respect to cars is, is something that should always be progressing. And it's irresponsible for any of us to think that we are going to enter that world with our opinions entirely valid, knowing everything we need to know about what makes us happy in a car and, and being ready to make the right decision to buy the right car for us. And, you know, I still buy cars that were super cool when I was 20 years old. I can't help but love them. I have all of them pretty much now that anybody would have wanted short of a Bugatti Vera. And I, I just, I love going into my garage and it looking like I won the lottery 10 or 15 years ago. And that, that works very well for me. It works very well as I have an allergy to depreciation and I, I have to avoid you know, knowing that a car is going down in value just because I happen to love it enough to have paid for it. That just hasn't worked yet in my financial well-being or my personal life, but maybe one day. But, you know, I, I think that, sure, there are cringy customers. There are people who don't embody what we want to as enthusiasts. But when we start looking at a world where we're selling more than $100,000, $100,000 cars a year, we're going to have those. That's inevitable. And so I think, you know, coexisting alongside them is one of those things that we have to figure out a way to do. Yeah, that's an interesting. I've never really thought about like my my affection for cars as something to progress. But, you know, when you talk about it like that, I do kind of see that to be true when I think about what I liked as a kid versus what I like now. Uh, kind of like a little joke. Usually whenever people ask me, what's like your favorite car? What's the one car that you would give them, right? I have like a little 10 car list on my phone that I just give it to people and it's it, it changes like you said right you know when I first made it it had a certain 10 cars that now I kind of think mm, dude that is that really good taste do I really want that and of course it's changed now so very valid points so what's the list get it out what's the list get it out. okay let's see um uh -huh. All right. So I, I call this my dream 10. Like, you know, you said if you you won the lottery 15 years ago, uh, this is mine. Okay. So first one, Porsche 918 Spider. Second one, Bugatti Veyron Supersport, specifically the Supersport. Uh, McLaren F1, of course. Ferrari Enzo. I got to see one of those in Marinello. Fell in love with it. Porsche 356 Speedster. Lexus LFA. I absolutely love that car. If I had to choose one, probably the LFA. Uh, Ferrari 599 GTO, again specifically the GTO, Aston Martin DB5, Jaguar Mark 1, and then the Land Rover Defender 90 Heritage Edition. There you go. Yeah. So, Good stuff. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there used to be like an Aventador, and again, I was like, mm, is that, maybe that's not car enthusiasty enough, and maybe that's a little bit too, that doesn't speak that, hey, I like car cars, you know, it seems a little bit too much, a little too flashy. I guess is how I would say. So I had to take that one off the list. <laughs> and you put a Veyron World Speed Record car or a Super Sport on there. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that's one of those cars. It's like a little unavoidable. You have to have it on your list. You gotta you have, have it. To. Well, you agree. <laughs> All right. Well, through Car Trek, I learned that you are known as the shrewd negotiator. Uh, negotiating has traditionally been a scale needed for purchasing and selling cars. And personally, it seems like quite good fun to me. 
Um, however, many new apps and websites are slowly eradicating the need for tense negotiations in the car buying process. Does that make you a little sad? Well, I don't do it on new cars, and that's the only time. I mean, now, there are dealership models that are no-haggle pricing, which only means that we have unqualified salespeople that we don't want to allow to haggle. And it's pretty valid. It may I mean it makes sense from a business model. You pay people a lot less. You sell at slimmer margins and you, and you do well. So, you know, that may be true. But in the cars that I buy, there's plenty of room for negotiation. And I use the term shrewd negotiation because, uh, quite honestly, when I was describing a rapper that my wife bought a Ferrari from and a prostitute that I bought a Lamborghini from, I couldn't think of another facetious term for someone who was attempting to negotiate from a point of no leverage. And I used, and he was a shrewd negotiator in both contexts. And so that stuck a bit more than I expected it to. But I, um, I, I love the way that I buy cars and it involves a ton of risk and focusing on cars you really know about and, you know, assuming that sometimes they're going to break and they do, uh, but sometimes they don't and you make a lot of money. And so I, I've, I, I kind of honed it into something that works for me and it's probably, it would be terrible advice to anybody else. But, you know, when people ask, I have videos that I refer them to and say, look, you shouldn't do any of it, but if you want to know how I do it, this is exactly how I do it. Yeah. And since you brought up the, the Lamborghini that you bought from a prostitute, I was just watching the video today, actually, a car story. So that, that, that Lamborghini video is, is the reason you didn't get to buy a Ford GT, right? <laughs> That's what they said. So I got both the approval letter and the turndown letter uh, in the second round of Ford GT applications. And the approval letter came two weeks after the turndown letters. And so they always do that so that you if you apply, but you don't get the turndown letter, you think there's hope. And then they approved some and they wait list some. Well, after I got the turndown letter, I still got the approval one. And it turned out that they had sent the approval ones to the wrong list. There was like revision one of people we think might get one. And then there was a revision two and I had fallen off in those revisions. And so apparently because I bought a Lamborghini from a prostitute, they did not believe I would be a good Ford GT owner. And so I, uh, I did not get one, uh, which was a little bit upsetting, uh, I, I thought it was a beautiful car, but certainly the most beautiful new car that I felt like anybody had made in a little while. Obviously, like everybody else, I wasn't crazy about it being a V6, but at that point, we already knew that the cars were worth 500 grand over sticker. Uh, I don't think that I would have flipped it uh, because you know I didn't think they were going to go down in value at any point. And so owning it for exactly two years in a day or 20 years, I think I'd still do well enough in it. Uh, I do think I would have ended up selling it rather quickly because I don't fit and <laughs> it would have taken some considerable seat modification where I was really just sitting on some padding on the tub in order for me at six, five to fit. And my favorite thing to do in a car is take it on a big road trip and you can't, I had uh Shmee, Tim Burton yeah, I was gonna say. Uh, on the YouTube channel talking about it the other day. And, you know, he drove his 3000 miles around the country, including to my house. And they were having to call an Uber to follow them to their hotel to carry their luggage. So they were like, I'm just going to put this in your trunk and then you follow me here, which every Uber driver justifiably thought was a bomb. And so it was, uh, it was a real pain. And so having a, this size, thing behind the engine that gets at 180 degrees was not an answer. Um, so it would have been a, obviously I would have bought one given the chance. I don't know how I would afford it. I don't have 600, whatever thousand dollars right now, but 
I, I would have figured out a loan to do it again, but I, I, I wasn't upset necessarily to not get one. Um, I do really want an 812 VS. It looks like they're going to call it this week, the 812 version special. Uh, to do as a tribute to the Yates Gurney Daytona, but uh, I don't know. I, I have no new car status with Ferrari, so I'm not sure that's in the cards either. <laughs> well, uh, talking about some of the cars you own, you have a reputation for buying cars with interesting backstories. Uh, we talked about the prostitute Lamborghini. You also bought Paris Hilton's old Mercedes McLaren SLR. Um, yeah, I could go on, but now the, the stories obviously make the cars much more fun to own, but have you ever made a purchase where you feel that the emotional connection isn't enough to outweigh the pain of maintaining and owning that car? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm trying to think if there was one that, you know, the only time I really got bit hard on one is I bought my wife a supercharged 2010 Range Rover autobiography from a dealer who swore up and down that it didn't need timing chains and it needed timing chains. And so I had about a $9,000 unplanned expenditure on that car, which is the most I've ever spent on a car that just broke, uh, I think. Yeah. So uh, that was the only time I, you know, it was factored in that I knew that I'd be okay in the car if I had to spend, you know, money on things that they're known to have happened. So, you know, it's one of those things that I, I got it cheap. I ended up paying what I probably could have bought a decent one for, but it had that sorted out. Um, I don't know if there's been one that, uh, probably not. It's hmm. always been worth it. I, I feel like paying. if you ask Freddie or Tavares, maybe they don't like maybe the, Maybe the uh, the flood Gallardo <laughs> had a lot of work that need, that it needed on that one, right? It did, but once it's sorted out, now the thing's super dependable. Um, yeah. And I love driving it. I've still got it, and I I can't imagine anything that'd be cooler for. I think I own it for probably like eighty two, eighty three grand right now, and it's it's awesome. I mean, it looks like a hundred and thirty thousand dollar car. It's a stick. I mean, the check engine lights are on, and the gas gauge doesn't work, but awesome yeah so i mean i don't like perfect cars because i like not worrying about it at all and if a friend wants to borrow them for the week or if i just want to drive it to the moon and back i can do that and to me that's a big part of feeling like you own the car and if you have any constraints if there's anything holding you back then why buy it in the first place just have a model or a poster or something like that yeah, that's a fair point because personally when i write about cars i i like to write about or i guess in general as car enthusiasts we like to think of cars as somewhat human right personified and you know if if you if you listen to people like jeremy clarkson right they like to talk about a car that might be too perfect you know that like he, the reason that he likes an alfa romeo is that they have some deficiencies and just like any person would and i personally i kind of agree with that so i, I really understand where you're coming from with you don't like a perfect car yeah, I, it just it's boring. Yeah, you know, we want we want cars that have stories, and we make stories with them. And so, you know, when we think about how, and the great thing about a bad history in a car is that it matters less and less every day. If a car was in an accident yesterday, we worry about it. If it was in it twenty years ago, ain't nobody care. Fair enough. Well, that's all the time that we have for the off the grid segment. So for now, it's time to jump back into the main conversation. 
Well, Ed, let's talk a little bit about the Cannonball Run. Firstly, for those in our audience who don't know, what exactly is the Cannonball Run? So the Cannonball Run is the colloquial name for the Cannonball Baker Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash that was invented by Brock Yates and Steve Smith while they worked at Car and Driver Magazine. They did a scouting run in 71, and then they ran it four times competitively with multiple cars in 71, 72, 75, and 79. Brock Yates and Dan Gurney won the first one in a Ferrari Daytona that they were lent to by Kirk F. White. And that car is not mine, despite many, many attempts and offers at shrewd negotiation to buy it. But it was a race from New York to Los Angeles, the only rule being that there are no rules. And it was a hand-picked group of mostly racing drivers and serious journalists and car enthusiasts. I'm Brock Yates, and so they met at the Red Ball Garage most years at the Goodwife Shopping Center in 1979, and they raced to the Portofino Hotel and Marina in Redondo Beach, California. So it's about 2,800 miles, and so it ended in 1979, and Brock kind of transitioned it into the one lap of America, where at first they would literally drive one lap of America, about 11,000 miles in a week, and see who could do that the fastest, or at least kind of rally style. They would try to average like five over the speed limit. But that, uh, that eventually became what is now the One Lap of America, run by Brock Yates' son, Brock Yates Jr. And that is a series of timed laps at a dozen or so tracks around the country. And so they're about to do that next week. But the event kind of lived on through a couple of continuation events, including the U.S. Express from 80 to 83. And again, it was as a New York to L.A. race all out. And the fastest time from Cannonball was 32 hours and 51 minutes. The fastest time from the U.S. Express was 32 hours and 7 minutes. And then that record did not advance until 2006. And that year in May of 2006, Alex Roy and Dave Maher went out and set a record uh, of 31 hours and 4 minutes. And before they announced it, in, actually they did it in October, in May of 07, Richard Rawlings and Dennis Collins uh, set what they thought was the record at 31 hours and 59 minutes in a 550 Marinello. And obviously they learned a few months later when Alex Roy released his time and his book about the drive that they had been beaten. And so Richard and Dennis adhered to the true start and end points. Alex went from the uh, New York Classic Car Club to the Santa Monica Pier, but obviously those were both kind of the marks to beat. And so in 2013, I beat both of their times. I, th I did it in 28 hours and 50 minutes from New York to LA, the Red Ball to Portofino in a CL55 along with Dave Black and Dan Wong, two of the guys that ended up helping me to develop the VinWiki app. And so uh, I held the record until late 2019 when it was broken by a couple of our popular VinWiki storytellers, Arnie Toman and Doug Tabbitt, who met in my warehouse telling car stories. And then uh, all of our records were broken about half a dozen times during COVID because when you take all the people and the cops off the road, it's a lot easier to drive fast. And so there still are idiots like us who care about driving as fast as you can across the country. We average right at 100 miles an hour. And uh, now the average is almost 110, uh, which is crazy. It seems like a, uh, a big, big difference. <laughs> so like you said, uh, you, you set the record in 2013 and uh, CL55 AMG. Um, what type of preparation goes into a record setting cannonball run? It's kind of a really interesting multivariable equation because obviously you have to have the right car, the right route, the right team, the right preparation, the right suite of countermeasures. So we had three editor detectors, two laser jammers, a police scanner, a CB radio, an ambulance traffic light changer, multiple GPSs and phones and tablets and, you know, all the things that we could possibly think of and afford. And I was still on a very much a shoestring budget. I was 28 years old when I did it, still running the rental car company, kind of just having transitioned into the dealership. And I, you know, spent every dollar I had uh, to try to do it. Now, 
it's crazy. I mean, it's truly money, no object attempts, both in and out of COVID. So, I mean, these guys have 30 spotter cars driving ahead of them. So they never have to worry about cops. One of their friends will have already gotten a ticket from them. Uh, so it's a very different calculation now. And they're doing it. I mean, Arnie Z63 that beat my time. I mean, I had a totally stock motor CL55, 493 horsepower. His is a 900 horsepower car. Uh, so, I mean, certainly they took the recipe and then went all the way as, as they possibly could with it. So I love that. And I, there, it's, there's no rules to constrain it. It's just, you know, their creativity layered onto mine and layered onto Alex and Richard and everybody else who's thought about this and certainly going all the way back to Brock Yates and Cannonball Baker, who the event's named after. So you, you touched on it a little bit already, but how exactly do you make sure you don't get pulled over? Because, you know, going 100, 110 miles an hour in certain places, you know, you can get cuffed, right? And they, they can... Of course, yeah. Uh, I mean, you do it by managing when you're going to go through those big places. And so you try to drive as much as night, as much at night as is possible. You try to limit the the way that the car is kind of exposed. You know, we used a car that was kind of color ambiguous. Is it gray? Is it green? Is it blue? Sort of thing. You also obviously use all the gadgets, all the countermeasures, and and you just develop a set of driving protocols. I mean, cops are people. They have eyes. They use them to detect speeders. If you're looking and they're looking and, you know, they're not hiding too much, which most of the time they don't. They don't have to. Their job is just to be present and visible and slow people down. And certainly there's a chance and certainly it's happened where people get big, bad tickets uh, attempting cannonballs. But usually, I mean, certainly on all the record runs, nobody does. And so... Uh, we saw five fixed speed traps all over 2,810 miles. So uh, they were all pretty easily detected, including the one that my co-driver didn't understand what brakes, brakes, brakes meant. We blast by a cop going 130 miles an hour. But fortunately, he was checking something on his computer, not looking at the road at that time, even though he's parked in the median. And so I don't know what website recently updated we have to thank for that distraction. But uh, that was the only real close call we had. So like... Even though you have all these countermeasures to make sure while you're on the road doing the run, you know, you don't get pulled over. At the end of the day, these these numbers are still highly publicized, right? So has there not been some lawyer from, you know, the, the Atlanta area of police or something that's kind of phoned you up and say, hey, Ed, we know that you were, there's no possible way that you were, you know, following the speed limit. We're going to give you some fine or something. Well, so fortunately, I don't live in a state that we drove through. So of the 13 states that you drive through from New York to Los Angeles, Georgia is fortunately not one of them. And so I, I would have had a little bit more concern if I did. Uh, that being said, there hasn't been any retroactive prosecution in general. The, we wait about a year before we make any empirical proof public. And so we released the story, Doug DeMuro, who was a friend and is still to this day, wrote the first article about it for Jalopnik and it did very, very well. It then went on to CNN and NBC and they all fact check it. So I had all of my GPS readings and all the metadata from all the photos and everything, all that available, but I had to hold it and hand it to them. I wasn't going to send it to somebody who could be subject to a subpoena. And so the same thing's true for me here at Benwicky now. Like when I have a storyteller come and tell us about it, like I want to see their evidence, but I don't want to, I don't want to have it. I want pictures stripped of metadata, clips that don't have, you know, uh, clearly the driver, the location and the speed all in the same unbroken clip, things like that. And so you can protect yourself from not having a cop come knocking at your door just by being careful in those sorts of ways. And so at this point, there's kind of a protocol to it. Alex waited a year, obviously, to say anything about it, which is not wrong. But I talked to a lot of lawyers and they all said, you know, we 
feel like they could come after you, but we can't even put our finger on exactly how someone would. I do know that the FBI investigated it pretty heavily, but perhaps recreationally, because I know Alex Roy spoke to some friends that were there when he was kind of frustrated that we had beaten his record and was trying to find a narrative to which we were lying. And uh, he said he spoke to a friend there who said, you don't need to keep thinking he's lying. We've, we've seen the proof. Because, you know, back then, that was pretty early in the days where your phone would have very clearly uh, told them and they have access to that. So so they know what you did. It's just not something they can convict you over. Yeah, so so... Today, if you wanted to do it, you have to make sure you don't have something trackable like a phone on you when you're going through the whole run. I mean, we all keep phones on us, but the uh, again, law enforcement is would have to, even though they have access to it, they would have to subpoena the phone company in order to use it. And the phone companies wouldn't surrender that, and they would take that all the way to the Supreme Court, but they don't have to incriminate their clients. And so it's one of those things that even though they know, they got to find another way to prove it. And so, and, and they can't prove which one's driving. Both of all, you know, all three of our phones were riding the car. And so who could say, who could yeah. say other than the traffic cameras? Yeah, well, it seems like some complicated stuff, but I really like the idea of a race from New York to LA. So I, I definitely get the, what the urge is to do it. Um, I now want to talk a little bit about Car Trek. Uh, sure. I know that you and your co-presenters have expressed a long lasting love for Top Gear, but... How did the ball get rolling in terms of making Car Trek a reality? So Freddie was here telling stories on his way to Tyler's house to deliver the Pimp My Ride van. And we were sitting around my fire one night and I said, Freddie, why don't we do a cheap car challenge like Top Gear? And he's like, well, they have millions of millions of dollars. It's the most expensive and most watched show ever produced. And I said, well, we have enough money to buy terrible examples of really cool cars. We do that every day anyway. Why don't we buy another one together? And he's like, well, I guess we could. And so since he was on the way to Tyler's house and I actually just sold Tyler his Murcielago, we're like, well, he'd be a perfect third. And, you know, we'd be pooling our audience base, which obviously there's a lot of overlap, but at the same time, we all have our, you know, million plus subscriber audiences. How hard can it be? And I mean, again, I, I call it playing top gear. Like, um, we're not trying to not do it. We are blatantly knocking off the concept that we love. The only real wrinkle being like, we do actually buy the cars because we love buying cars. And so we invent the challenges under the pretense that Auto Tempest dictates it. But I mean, it's all up to us what we do and they approve it. And then they say, yeah, let's make that show. And it's, you know, we've now done four. We're getting ready to go shoot five next month. And it is as much fun as you can have. And, you know, I think there's an obligation for us because like I said, I started the VinWiki YouTube channel to promote the app, but clearly it's grown beyond that. We have 1.4 million subscribers and 400,000 app users. Like, yes, the cart drives the horse very, very actively. And so I unintentionally and unimaginably became an automotive influencer. And it's an awesome thing, but it also, there is a responsibility there. And to me, the responsibility is that, all right, if these people want to watch what me and my friends do with cars and they want to hear the stories about it, I need to find the ways to make the coolest car stories possible and to live out and express my enthusiasm for the automobile as clearly as possible. And if you ever ask me literally for the last 20 years and, you know, eventually at first it was, I want to be the crocodile hunter. But after that, I was like, 
I want to be on Top Gear. Who doesn't want to be on Top Gear? Now, I'm very, very glad that we are not Top Gear. Like, that's an impossible thing. And Chris Harris has talked about the therapy that's been required for him to be a Top Gear host because you can't carry that mantle. You can't live up to what they did. Now, you can use their template and play their games and have that much fun. And I know it's a cringy knockoff, but it is way more fun to do than it is to watch. And I'm very, very happy about that. And so I hope people enjoy watching it only so that I get to do it more, not because I'm going to pander what it is in order to make them like it more, but because literally it's the three of us in a group chat every hour talking about, Hey, what if we did this? Wouldn't this be fun? And then top gear happens. And so I don't know how long your delay is before this comes out, but we're about to do Car Trek 4, which is buying Ferraris for the price of a Camry and searching for the greatest road in America. And it was the most fun I've ever had in a car. And I, I, I have to say, like, just the, the combination of bringing them together, bringing these cars together, finding the right roads, building the challenges, and it kind of being a very natural expression of what made us love cars and how we love cars all intersecting. Like it's the perfect storm of loving cars. So you're touching, right? It's, it's a blatant copy of top gear. Now I'm not going to say which interview this was, but we had an interview where we, we talked about Jeremy Clarkson, the grand tour top gear. And when I, when it came around to posting it, uh, we had some issues because the the folks at BBC and Amazon or Amazon Prime were a bit touchy about what can show up where. So were you not ever afraid by like you know coming out clean and saying we're just gonna t you know uh, copy uh, a Top Gear cheap car challenge? Were you not afraid that someone from the BBC might come along and say like you know call foul or something like that? You know, uh, Clarkson has mentioned that he's seen it. May has mentioned things about it, and so. You know, to me, you can't trademark three guys in three cars going on a drive. That's not a, you know, that's not an intellectual property that could be protected. Can they sue us? Of course they could. And if they did, they would win because they have a lot more money than we do. Um, but that being said, I, I think that there's literally hundreds of concepts that have spun off in the exact same way. Maybe they were less honest about the tribute they were trying to pay to our heroes, but I, I, I don't know that we're stepping on their toes to that extent. And honestly, you know, if you asked how I would like to differentiate ourselves from Top Gear, making it very clearly not the producers that are buying all the cars and then just tossing us the keys to the ones that are ours, to me is a big thing, right? So, I mean, we do own these cars and the series that we're going to shoot next is, is starts in our dream cars, which we've all been able to own because of the audiences that we've gained on social media. And I think that that should, that that's a great series. Like, and it, it's not a top two thing. They never did that. Surely <clears throat> we saw Clarkson drive his four GT in one of the challenges, which was super cool. We saw Mays. 430 and is 458 at different times in this series. And that was always a great insight. I wanted more of that. I, I wanted them to talk about why, you know, Clarkson bought his 355 GTS, why he bought a Gallardo Spider, why he bought his Ford GT. And that was the only one we really got any insight to. And so I, I like that that is a differentiating factor for Car Trek from Top Gear, but I'm not fishing for a lot of differentiation. I see. Yeah, well, for our audience out there, I was talking with Ed a little bit about uh, Car Trek before we started the interview, 
And generally speaking, I'm not like a, a huge fan of not. I shouldn't say I'm not a huge fan because I, there are a lot of automotive YouTubers I like out there. But Car Trek season one, season two, season three is the first time I really found myself coming back and you know really wanting to watch the next episode, and the next episode, and the next one. So as as a Top Gear fan, I think it's pretty. I I think it's pretty well documented on this series that I'm a Top Gear fan. So I love watching it. Can't wait for season four and. What you just said, finding Ferraris for the price of a Camry, that sounds very, very exciting. It All right, so it's time now for one more quick diversion, fan questions. And this first fan question is from at Shock is a Pair. He's asking, what is the most exciting car you've driven with a low horsepower output? Most exciting car I have driven with a low horsepower output was an Exige Cup car. So uh, Lotus built like a dozen of them. For the U.S. and when they did the bigger exiges that were for the U.K., they only brought them to the U.S. as fully caged out FIA fuel cell race cars. And I, like an idiot, was like, "I'm driving this thing on the road because I had an MSO for it. I was a car dealer. I could get pulled over. This would be okay. You should never drive a caged car without a helmet. I didn't have a helmet with me. Send it. Uh, but yeah, that was 345 horsepower V6. It was the Evora S engine." The Camry V6. Um, and it was awesome. I love Lotus products. Uh, if I had a spot in the garage, I, I, I think having an Exige S 260 would be a great car to own. They're super rare. They're super awesome. They're unrepeatable in the way they were built. And uh, so I love those cars. Uh, I'd probably have an S2000 as well if I had a space for it and was five inches shorter. But I, I, I like high revving, low horsepower, lightweight cars like anybody else should. And uh, I love raw cars that have zero technology in them. And that, that, that one certainly qualifies. And so I love an Exige. And I fit when I'm in it. It's a pain, obviously, to get in and out. But I, I would still own one all day long. I just have other cars right now that I like more. Well, are you, are you taller than Clarkson? Because I'm pretty sure back on old Top Gear, Clarkson really liked the Honda S2000. And he drove that on a couple of challenges. I can drive an S2000, but I can't live with one on a regular basis. He's 6'4", I'm 6'5", uh, so we're, we're very similar there. Clarkson always said something that is one of my favorite quotes of any automotive journalist. He said, I can fit into anything that I want to. And that's very, very true. I have contorted myself into many, many cars that I had no business being in or driving or making move, but I haven't found an awful lot of them that I can't drive. Uh, I certainly find a lot of them that I wouldn't drive an awful lot simply because my head doesn't fit, but I'm still going to drive it and drive it hard whenever I get the chance to. You know, it's funny that, you know, talking about driving position and stuff like that, because I remember when Emil Beret came on to our talk show and Emil did some stunt driving for Jeremy on, um, on the Grand Tour. And he, he says like, he would always try to tell Jeremy about like correcting his driving position. He's like, it's just terrible. He doesn't sit correctly at all. And Jeremy never, ever wants to hear any of it. <laughs> No, and, and I think that's, you see, when you're dealing with someone who you're going to see 12 times a year on television, that is a very different relationship between presenter and viewer than we have on YouTube. And that's good and bad. So it's a lot harder for us to, like, you couldn't get away with that on YouTube. If you're making a lot of videos, and, and I'm not that, like, I mean, I, I appear in at a, you know, 20, 30, 40 stories a year on the Benwicky channel. Uh, but if if I'm Hoovy or Freddie and, and we're seen driving in a stupid way all the time, like we don't get away with that the way that 
other presenters on other shows always have. And so you can't fake West Coast Customs builds and you can't have stunt drivers switching in because you can't do this thing in a car. And, you know, again, we're not professional drivers. We're not stunt drivers. We're not good at that stuff, but, it, but we have to do it. And that's, that's another part of, you know, the minuscule budget that we have for our shows on YouTube or for Car Trek relative to what a full-fledged, you know, 250 grand at the low end, $2 million at the high end per episode budget that the, that our favorite shows always had uh, is a very different calculation. And so, you know, the fact that, yeah, they have some bad habits, they have some bad, you know, things that you'd have to dance around. But again, when they're on camera for less than 12 hours a year, they can do, they can be very different than they're perceived. We don't necessarily have that privilege. Fair enough. The second question is from at ZK. Uh, you touched a little bit already about uh, the responsibility you feel, you know, running VinWiki. But so he's asking, was the rapid growth of VinWiki stressful in terms of making sure that each new upload was better than the one before and that there was a continued growth? Hmm, that's a great question. The weight was only due to the content volume requirement, not so much finding the greatest stories. I mean, the stories sort of come to us now and... And obviously they radiated from my sphere of people I knew in the automotive world, but it's very much a, a situation where we, I, I knew that I needed to produce content on a daily basis. And that was really, really hard, particularly as I had to learn to edit. I'd never edited a video in my life. I didn't own a camera worth shooting on. I had to go buy one and replicate the setup and then learn, oh, it's all about the lens and all about the lighting and all about getting rid of this terrible echo in my warehouse. And so that was very, very stressful, learning to be a videographer. However, one of the saving graces of social media content creation is that the quality threshold is not really that big of a deal. And guys who approach it from film school, like J.F. Musial, who is infinitely better at making a car video than any of us, struggle with YouTube because they can't possibly produce the volume of content that you need to to build an audience while maintaining their insane thresholds. And I'm so glad they're still finding places and ways to do that because everything he does for Porsche, everything he's done with Apex, everything he's done with Tangent Vector is phenomenal. But I know it eats him alive to see people like me have an audience for car videos because on deserving it, based on our film capabilities, I deserve nothing and he deserves all of it. But we have a recipe that works for YouTube. Hoovy has a recipe that works for YouTube. Doug DeMuro in two t-shirts and shorts standing behind a car to talk about it, which makes no sense at all, has a way to make YouTube videos work. And so we've all found our niche and I, I love that. And I love the fact that they wouldn't be TV shows. They're not good enough to go anywhere else, but they go on YouTube and an audience gets it and they relate to it. And so that's where I... I felt, I mean, admittedly, our content style hasn't changed in four years and 1,100 videos. So that is great. And I am very, very blessed that I accidentally had a way to do this uh, because I, I can't do anything else. I can't make a moving camera shot because I, I don't know even how you do it. I watch the guys on Car Trek that, that we hired to shoot it. And I'm like, nope, I can't possibly do that. I'm going to, you know, 
slouch in my chair and tell you about some war story that was a whole lot of fun at the time and uh, or wasn't. And now it is fun to talk about. And so, you know, that's where I, I think that there is pressure and uh, we want to make sure that we're putting out the best possible content. But I don't know what's going to be the best possible content. I mean, I did a story two weeks ago about Paris Hilton getting a DUI in my SLR and then getting it repoed, which is about as clickbait perfection as you could ever ask for for the YouTubes. And it got 180,000 views and it'll continue to probably get, you know, get 500 one day. But then I have a guy come in and just tell a story about knowing Steve Wynn and why he got his dealership taken away because of his LaFerrari. And that's getting 100,000 a day a week later. And so we really don't know always what makes them successful on YouTube, but it's a very interesting learning process and uh, one I hope doesn't go away anytime soon. Well, being disappointed with a hundred thousand, I hope I hope that's something that at one point in my YouTube career I can be disappointed getting a hundred thousand views on a video. <laughs> well, and don't let me make that seem you know overly uh, I don't know conceited. It, it, I mean, I, I I love the videos that get no views a lot more than the ones that get a lot of views most of the time. And you know, I've had guys like Bill Warner who runs the Amelia Island Concours and has truly epic car stories but they're of obscure cars like a month's and ain't nobody clicking a month's story but i'm gonna have it i'm gonna make sure it's there and i don't care if it's four thousand views or five views like it's on there because that's the kind of thing that i want to have immortalized i mean obviously we need videos to be successful uh but at the end of the day i, I want to make sure it's all worth watching you know I, I like that because to be honest even though it's to a very very different scale here at the master cylinder i really like doing what I like to do, even if I know that it might not get the most views or might not get the most likes. Like, for example, I think the other day I posted, um, like, a, I'm doing this little tech talk series on my Instagram, where I posted, like, a, a thing about how the ERS system works in a Formula One car. And, you know, I knew that most likely people are not going to be very interested in it. But just personally, for me, I was very interested and wanted to learn about it. And so I just posted it anyway. So it's, it's nice to see that even at the higher level, you know, that sort of thinking exists. <laughs> All right. Well, so... it's a privilege, right? I mean, to be able to not so much care about the performance of a video. Now, fortunately, it's because in the aggregate, they all do okay. And our videos have super long tails and they still get a bunch of views down the road. But I, I mean, there are a ton of stories that I'll put on there that I know won't get that many views, but I just care a lot about the storyteller or the nature of the story and the kind of thing that I hope somebody can learn from. For sure. Well, my last question for fan questions, and I guess not my question, it's the question from at Chi-Town Exotics. How did you meet Tyler Hoover and Freddie Tavares? So I met Freddie because <clears throat> Demuro got so much heat from Jalotnik for writing about my record that he didn't want to write about. Uh, in 2015, we won an event called the 2904, which you have to race from New York to LA for a dollar a mile. So we had to spend less than $2,904. And I bought a $1,500 salvage title, 12 owner, two accidents, branded title S55, and uh, rebuilt it with a friend to uh, drive across the country. And we, we won that event. And so Freddie was essentially voluntold to do the article on it uh, while he was writing for Jalopnik as well. And so he wrote the article there. And so we kind of stayed in touch. And uh, he, he had started his YouTube channel too terribly long, maybe a year, year and a half before we started the Benwick YouTube channel. I think he had like 50 to 60,000 subscribers when we started. And 
Um, he came through Atlanta at one point and drove several of my cars, the CL, the S55, maybe the 993. I don't know why we didn't drive a Mercy at that time. But yeah, so um, I met him through there. And then I met Hoovy. Freddie asked if I wanted Tyler Hoover to come tell car stories uh, on a trip through Atlanta that he was doing when, uh, on a project with Auto Trader. I said, of course. And uh, I had bought an, the my S65 at an auction and it was having a hundred different issues at the time. And I remember picking him up in it and us trying to diagnose all of it uh, ineptly uh, as he came over and he told a few stories and, you know, was brilliant as he is. And yeah, so we just kind of stayed in touch through that. Yeah, I, I love the way Tyler like exclaims when he speaks. Even more than that, I like on Car Trek when uh, Freddie tries to make fun of the way that Tyler talks and imitates him. Tyler is is a very unique bird, and, and it's it's great because I mean I I think it's hard for me to believe, and certainly there's evidence to the contrary that Hammond May and Clarkson are are as good of friends as we want them to be, right? in real life, but like, I truly enjoy the company of these guys. And in the same way that you are with college roommates, like I can make fun of them down to their core and the next moment we're fine and I can need them and they're there. And I, I think that that friendship and that balance is, is what, whatever, staying power car trek has it's going to come from that it's not the cars it's a it's always going to be a friendship and travel piece and it should be the cars are a vessel they're a part of it they're the way that we know each other but in reality you know i expect and i hope that people will stay because of the friendship that we demonstrate there and it's real now that you're talking about you know funny moments between you three moments of bonding uh, like the from car trek season three just popped into my head so did Ty Tyler really just fell into that lake when he was canoeing out there? <laughs> no, he decided to jump into that lake or sorry, because he did not tether his rowboat to the barge where our message was. And, you know, we, we had this weird lake and this weird castle in Missouri that we had rented and we needed to find a way to use it. And so we put a, a light bar and a smoke bomb out on this barge and it made sense for Tyler to go out there and get it. And we never thought, I mean, it was freezing cold. I mean, we were, Freddie and I were sitting by a fire in order to tolerate the scene. It was in October, but it was still in Missouri and it was chilly in the middle of the night. And, and I think I joked like, oh, it'd be real silly if you tried to swim back because it shouldn't have been possible. And the leeches that should have found him and the parasites that inevitably went in there, I mean, it was awful. But he just decides to do it. And um, he had a mild panic attack halfway through, realizing like it's way further when you're in the water than it looks when you're standing on the boat. And uh, no, he made it and he was freezing cold. And somehow he still wore that shirt after it dried out a couple more times that week. So, uh, yeah, but no, he's he's crazy. He's perfect in that regard. And uh, certainly I never expected to be the most put together member of the crew, but everybody's got to have a role, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that, that was one part that I was like genuinely surprised to see Tyler just swimming through the lake in the middle of the night. And yeah, I, I could tell it was cold because it was, it's a Christmas special in Missouri, right? That's um, it. That's it. Yeah. But thank you as always to everyone who submitted a fan question. Um, now it's on to my very last question of the interview. 
So after running various businesses and having so much success with VinWiki, what does it mean to you that you're this widely respected member of the automotive community? Do you feel that your work has some deep significance and impact on people? Or do you just simply enjoy being around cars and feel grateful that you get paid to do so? Fantastic question. I mean, I think that we have to look at the content that we're creating as a body of work and we want it to be significant. And I like that everything I've been able to do that's even marginally interesting around a car has been encapsulated into a story that people can consume, right? And, you know, the stories that my grandkids will inevitably get tired of hearing have already been heard millions of times. And that's a real, real privilege. And I don't know that they deserve it. I certainly don't believe I deserve it. However, the, the opportunity that has been offered there is amazing. And I don't take it lightly, um, but I, I do take it seriously. And I, I wanna make sure that what we're producing is worth watching, but I also want it to be fun and not, and I don't want it to take itself too seriously. Like if I misspell a word and it's 2 a.m. and I'm gonna miss, you know, re-render stuff and I'll wait for it to upload, we're probably just gonna send it because it is the internet. But at the same time, like I really do care about expressing my love for cars and very significantly expressing my true love for the relationships that I build around cars through the channel. And again, not to make it bigger than what it really is. It's a YouTube channel where we talk about our best car stories, but I I've had the opportunity to experience way more than I deserve in and around cars. And I continue to get great opportunities like that. And so what I, what I get convicted about is using those as well as I can to live the dream, but also to bring people along for the ride there. And I, I hope I do a good job of it. And if anybody ever feels like I don't, I hope they'll comment and let me know. Yeah, well, um, speaking of privilege and, you know, things you feel you don't deserve personally, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Uh, you know, it's, I, I, I think I have to say you're probably like the first quasi celebrity that we've had on the show. So yeah, thank you again for, for agreeing to do this and sitting down with me. Oh, well, you're a great interviewer. I appreciate the time. And uh, I'm sure you'll have many non quasi celebrities to, uh, sit across a Zoom meeting from before too terribly long. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the TMC Talk Show. If you would like to watch the video version of this interview, make sure to visit our YouTube channel, The Master Cylinder. Also, make sure to visit our website at www.themastercylinder.blog to check out all of the content we have to offer. Other than that, keep the good times going by listening to another podcast by The Master Cylinder.